Hi, my name is Sean Awashio. I'm the visual effects project manager for the Star Trek universe, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Star Trek and every other popular sci-fi franchise out there would be incomplete without visual effects. Someone has to design and create the laser fire, the explosions, the starships, the computer screens, and in some cases, even the backgrounds. It's one of the elements that can make or break a sci-fi show, or really any show or movie that they appear in. The best VFX are the ones you don't even realize are there, and there's a ton of shows you watch out there that probably have them that you are never even aware of. That's why today I am excited to speak with Sean Iwashko, who is the visual effects project manager at CBS. Sean was a Trek fan growing up, and now he gets to live the dream by helping work with the VFX team helmed by Jason Zimmerman to create some stunning visual effects ranging from phaser fights, ship battles, or oftentimes some more peaceful moments too. Sean's worked on Discovery, Picard, and the short Trek so far. But his resume also includes a lot of other things, some with VFX that would certainly surprise you. That list includes Gulliver's Travels, Hawaii Five-0, The Hunger Games, Grimm, Fringe, Game of Thrones, Community, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Glee, Bones, Preacher, Empire, The Tick, Orange is the New Black, Scream Queens, Clarice, and a whole lot more. So today on Trek Untold, it's all about understanding visual effects, with Sean explaining how the process works and how all the different pieces come together to make a Star Trek episode. Plus, a few hard questions, including his response to some of the criticisms of the new Star Trek shows and how their visual effects look. This is a really interesting one, so get ready to learn about a side of Star Trek that everyone sees in an episode, but an element where we rarely meet the people responsible for making them. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnews today. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. 
Now, without further ado, let's bring in this week's guest and get this episode started. Computer, beam in this week's guest. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we've got Mr. Sean Owashko, who is the visual effects project manager at CBS. That is a very awesome title, one that I'm quite jealous of. Uh, so, Sean, thank you so much for joining us here today. Of course, Matthew. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, that is such a, an amazing title, by the way. Just there's so much going into that. We're going to talk a lot today about visual effects, about what you do, about what your team does. Uh, but let's just start at the top. And, uh, Sean, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Wow. You know, my my mom was a huge fan of uh, The Next Generation, so I was exposed to it pretty young. Um, and I, I think my first memory, though, was I, I owned a Patrick Stewart and a, um, and a Data action figure, all Playmates action figures. And those are those are probably my first because I think I owned the toys before I was like really into the show. You know, my mom was like, oh, here are these toys. Um, and then I wound up watching the show with her, that kind of thing. And those were amazing Definitely toys. The toys. Yeah, they were. Yeah, some of the best still. What were some I of agree. your favorite uh, visual effects from watching TNG? You know, that's kind of a tough one because I, at the time, you know, I didn't really, if I look back now, I think that the things that they did, you know, they that was at a time when, when I think visual effects was really changing from all miniature to uh, a, a mixture of miniature CGI, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it was just inc- all of that, like the, the battley things, all of the, like the, the out, the outside of the ship things, I think were really interesting, you know, or, or any of the, you know, like the hero shots of, of the ships. I, I always think those are very interesting because they were able to do so much, with so little back then, you know, of course now it's, it's very, very drastically different, but at the time it was really groundbreaking stuff. You know, I'm very fortunate because I still I still work and know with a lot of people who who worked on that stuff. So it's, it's I learned a lot from those guys. Yeah, I found an old uh, flame tutorial where it was one of the guys who did VFX for Star Trek TNG. And I think they were breaking down a scene where it was like the Enterprise is docking in a space station. And there's like a, a matte painting combined with all the different models and some CG elements. That was pretty breakthrough stuff for that time period. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a cool process that, you know, nowadays we don't really there's not a lot of miniature or um or, or model shooting, you know, at all, really. Um, it's, it's almost all done digitally now. But it, back then, it just, it looked, it had a cool look to it. I think it still looks cool. You know, of course, it's dated, but I, I think they did such an amazing job that even today, when you look at it, I think, I think it's still interesting to see. Yeah, I think it's aged fairly well, all things considered. I mean, maybe not quite as, you know, bad as the original Star Trek series, but it's aged pretty well into this era. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So let's get some background information about you, Sean. And, and uh, I, I kind of know the answer to part of this, but uh, can you tell us where you were born, uh, what your parents did, who they were, and what little Sean wanted to be when he grew up? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up in Queens, but I was originally, I'm originally from Brooklyn. Uh, we moved into Queens. Queens guy too. Well, yeah, I, I, that's, we spoke a little bit about that. I like it. Where, where about in Queens are you from? I'm in Bayside, so I'm in the boring part. <laughs> okay. No, that's 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 right. I used to hang out a little bit around that, around that area. I, I grew up I, mostly in Massmouth Middle Village area. Um, just on a borderline where of where Brooklyn and Queens meet, um, but yeah, I you know I grew up I grew up in New York City. Um, my my parents were not um, they didn't have careers, you know there was no uh, you know my mom was basically a homemaker a single mom kind of thing. Uh, I didn't have a dad, so don't know what he did. But uh, uh, you know I think I, she always fostered art with art for me. 
you know, so I, I think I always wanted to do something um, in the arts. Uh, I don't know if I, if I was, if I ever nailed down what I really wanted to do. I think even what I do today is something drastically different than what I wanted to do even 10 years ago, five years ago. So, um, but I, I think the first thing that little Sean wanted to do was uh, he wanted to be an architect. You know, that was one of his, one of his first goals was to do glad I dodged that bullet though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's quite a big change there. I mean, how, how does Sean go from architecture to visual effects? I mean, was there a certain point in your life when you realized this is what you wanted to do? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of an interesting little stories. So I got into visual effects basically because I had a career prior to visual effects. Um, I was in operations and logistics for certain companies. Um, I had done purchasing for them, uh, mostly textile companies, um, things of that sort. And I was very good at um, facilitating things and, and making things happen. You know, that's kind of what I do today, you know, is I, I, I facilitate things and I make things happen. And that's, that's why I was, I excelled in, you know, team operations, overseeing teams or warehouses and, you know, uh, dealing with logistics of it all. I'm a good problem solver, you know, I always have been, but um, I wound up, it wasn't an art job and I really, really wanted to focus. I really wanted something art and, um, architecture never panned out. I just, you know, outside of school, I, I was always interested in it, um, but never, never went to school for it or anything like that. And I wound up playing um, in my mid twenties, a lot of Halo. This is where, this is where visual effects comes in. So I don't know if you remember um, like a, a machinima back in the day called uh, red versus blue. Mm-hmm. So um, I was a huge fan of that show and they were started doing visual effects and they were doing, you know, the in-game machinima that they did and i was so interested in it on how on how it all worked so i started looking into you know how how do they do this well i want to do this you know and i saw a a commercial on television one night for the dave school in orlando florida where i had been living at the time uh digital animation and visual effects school i wound up like driving over there one day and and just talking to them and being like hey like what's it what's take for somebody to to get in here and and do some stuff and you know, they kind of they, they pointed me in the right direction of like, hey, you should have a portfolio and you should kind of, you know, do a little learning on your own, figure out if this is what you want to do. And uh, I did that. You know, I, I went home and I spent, you know, uh, six months to a year, like working in three free 3D programs, that kind of thing. And I wound up really liking it, you know, um, it's drastically different than what I do today, which is kind of a hybrid of the two. But um, that's what led me to VFX, watching this show that had very minimal VFX at the time, but they were doing a lot of in-game things um, closely related to video games and visual effects go hand in hand. Right. So um, yeah, I just, I found, I found an interest that, you know, it was, it was able for me to, to get into art and do something that I was really interested in at the time. Yeah. The Dave school is a pretty well-known school for what it does as well. So good choice. That worked out really well. (laughs) Yeah. It was, I, I talk about the Dave school a lot because, you know, at the time I didn't have the money to go there, none of that stuff. And they, really they helped me they helped me 100 percent um i i was enrolled in a school and i was like you know pay as you go almost kind of deal you know like i was like they, they really they really helped me out because at the time it, they were still a little smaller at the, you know they had a lot of people in the industry but it was a smaller school you know it wasn't like um like a full sale who had like this big four-year program or nothing you know it was basically like a boots on the ground you know you go in and you do this year course and they prepare you for for a visual effects pipeline and that's exactly what they do. They, they prepare you to leave that school one day and the next day you could start in a studio, you know? 
So I, I, I owe them a lot, a lot, a lot of credit to, to them for, uh, for getting me prepping. Good to go. So do you remember what your very first big professional gig was that you got paid for? And do you remember what you learned from it? The, the, <laughs> yeah. So the first, the first visual effects gig that I did was, uh, I, I worked on, uh, Gulliver's travels, the, the Jack Black one. They were, it was when conversions first started getting big. So they needed people to roto and there was a, a small little house in Florida. And, uh, I was like, oh, I want to do visual effects. This is what I'm in school for. Maybe this is like a, a way to get in the door. And I realized very quickly that I never want to roto anything again in my life. I'm sure people who are listening know what, what rotoscoping is, but it's basically uh, tracing out um, objects or people for to, to be able to replace the background of them. Um, it's extremely, extremely uh, long and tedious process. Um, but it's it's a necessary one in visual effects for 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 many reasons, not just um, for 3D films, but for you know for for all parts of visual effects, especially you know compositing. You know what I did for years was a compositor, so um, it definitely came. The skill came in handy, but man, definitely learned I did not want to do that. That was not the part of the visual effects I, want, I was interested in for sure. Now, as you were coming up in the business, I mean, do you remember any important lessons you learned from more experienced VFX artists? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I learned from, a, a, you know, I still, till this day, I've been so fortunate to, to work with giants of the industry. I mean, the people who foundation imaging guys, all these guys who started visual effects in Hollywood, you know, uh, 40 years ago, however long it's been. Um, and a lot of these guys, by the time I met them, they were, um, they had it down. They knew they saw, you know, young people come in and, you know, I would, I was working tons of hours and I was, I was, I was living and dying by each shot, you know? And, and the one thing I had to learn was, um, especially as an artist, it, the shots aren't ours. So, you know, as much as I, I might have an opinion on a shot or I might have, um, not that we don't have cre creative license to do things, but, um, visual effects artists are less artists and more, uh, technical artists, I, I, I think would be a good term. Um, you know, we can't just do whatever we want. We have, you know, a visual effects supervisor, a comp supervisor, uh, executive producers, producers, the studio. We have all these people that we have to go through that make the call and make the decisions of what these shots should look like. So, of course, we have to assemble them and put them together. But at the end of the day, if, uh, you know, if our EP wants the sky to be purple, then, you know, the sky is going to be purple. It doesn't matter if it makes sense to us or not, you know. And uh, I saw a lot of artists get a lot of artists get really frustrated by that. Um, but I was very thankful to be to be one of the young guys who was able to to separate, to be objective. You know, and I think that even today that makes me very effective at what I do because I love Star Trek, but I view my job as as very objective. I don't fall in love like is it, is it amazing to be able to like meet Jonathan Frakes and talk to him and hang out or whatever, you know, who, who he's an amazing person. I, I love him to death. It's awesome. It's a, an amazing experience. And I have all of these experiences from it, but sorry, I lost my train of thought, thought talking about Jonathan. He's such a good dude. He's such a good dude. Um, but there are so many other people making decisions that, we have to be objective in what we do. So as much as I, I might have a say in something, I have to, I have the understanding that, you know, it's everybody else's show. Like 
this is not Star Trek is not mine. You know, um, it's it's not it's everybody's, to be honest, in my opinion. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there are so many other people making the final decisions, you know, so we have to be objective about it, because if you fall in love with something, that's what causes issues, you know, um, especially if you're in visual effects supervisors or um, or artists, again, going back to artists, if you fall in love with something and then you have to change it and it's heartbreaking that's where the, the contention comes in, you know, and then you get kind of bummed out. And I've seen a lot of artists get burned out that way. So it's a little bit about staying humble, don't have the ego and just be there to be in service for the entire crew, not just yourself. 100%. 100%. That's right there. That is the key to longevity. It, not just in Star Trek, but in the business in general. And looking at your resume too, or rather just at least what's on IMDb, because I know that's probably missing a bunch of things, but yeah. just looking at that stuff, you know, there's a lot of shows where you're listed as a digital compositor. And, yep. uh, so, and for folks, you know, if you don't mind explaining a little more about what that actually is, that'd be great. But, um, you know, I'm also curious for a lot of the shows that are listed there, there's shows that are like, you know, American horror story or preacher, mm -hmm. and those are probably more VFX heavy, but then I'm seeing stuff like bones or the blacklist. And I'm wondering like what VFX shots are in there. So, uh, you know, just keep in mind that that title that you had for digital compositing, uh, what would you typically do on the average show that you're working for? It depends on the show. Um, you know, we we won an Emmy when I was at Fuse Effects for American Horror Story and a show like that and Preacher as well. Um, again, very visual effects heavy. So, you know, explosions, uh, lots of gore stuff and horror story, of course, really, really visible visual effects. Yeah. Um, generally, though, uh, that's not the meat and potatoes of what we do. Um, visual effects, are, especially as a compositor, you know, we're at the end of the we're at the end of the visual effects pipeline. Yeah. So, you know, we have the 3D modelers and, you know, the modeling department and animation and all these things happen for um, for different aspects, whether it's spaceships or trains or, you know, CG cars on, you know, that, you know, we did some CG cars in different shows. Um, but at the end of the pipe, right at the end of the pipeline are compositors and, and it's our job to put everything together and make it photo real. So we might get a model or, or a matte painting or whatever it is, or, or, you know, green screen assets. And it's our job to put it all together make sure it looks real to that it's screen ready. But as for the other shows, the smaller shows, there is a surprising, I've always liked working on the shows with that are less VFX heavy apparent because to have your effects be invisible is the goal. So like you're always going to look at game of Thrones or, or star Trek and be like, you clearly that spaceship is not real. And, and the dragons are not real. But what you don't see is like, I worked on Mindy Kaling and, uh, uh, what you don't see is every episode she was on a train and the train is green screen and we had to replace the background and all these scenes. And like, if we did our job right, you didn't know that she wasn't actually on a train. Things like that. It shows like the blacklist or it's usually like set extensions. You know, you you might not see it, but, you know, the backgrounds are not there. You know, like they don't they didn't shoot it. They shot it on a lot somewhere. And then we put San Francisco in the background or whatever it is. And, you know, if we do it right, then then you don't notice it. You know, it's it's an invisible. We did um, uh, American Crime Story, for instance. So American Crime Story was a show that um, you would not think has a lot of visual effects. Everyone was touched in that show. Every actor had hair done. There was some something was done with hairlines or wigs because it was all it was all supposed to be done you know, back in the day. Right. There was a, or, or even like the O.J. Simpson one. Right. So it was a time period where people had different hairstyles and stuff. So they were all wigs. So removing glue lines from wigs, um, you know, painting out signs in the background, you know, maybe, you know, there's a sign that's indicative to a Starbucks and this is like, 
you know, in the 70s or whatever it is, you know, those kind of effects are so much more common for visual effects artists um, that I think people people don't realize it because there's so many good visual effects out now that you don't know when you're watching, you know, your your sitcom, a show like Mom, for instance, you know, it's shot in one room, basically, you know, or and, and all the backgrounds and all the people walking in. And when you see the street and you're not really on a street, you know, it's, it's all it's all green screen shot on like, you know, uh, a very, very small set. Um, and, and if we do our job right, then you don't know that, you know, it, it doesn't take you out of it. You know, you think you're actually watching them come and go out of a diner every day or whatever, the, whatever it is that they're looking at. Um, so yeah, invisible effects. That was, that was a large portion of, especially if you look at my IMDb, tons of stuff like stuff like bones would have, uh, monitor comps. You know, I don't know if you remember on, on the show bones, they would always be touching monitors or looking at the news pops up all that, all of that was had to be replaced, you know, then it's the compositor's job to take whatever elements that, you know, the studio gives us or the, the, the client gives us and replace those monitors and, and, uh, and put the graphics in where they belong, that sort of thing. Yeah, on my YouTube channel, we just did a review of In the Heights, which came out recently, just taken off HBO Max by the time we're doing this interview. But uh, you know, and part of that review that I did with it was talking about the VFX and how a lot of them kind of actually took me out of the film. And I don't know if you had a chance to watch it yet. But, I have uh, not. In particular, there's a scene where uh, two of the characters are dancing on the side of a building, and it's really cool. But basically, uh, the scene starts with these two characters walking out into a fire escape, and the minute they got there... I knew there was going to be VFX shots because it just didn't match anything. It didn't look at all like the rest of the movie had looked. It just looked very fake. Mm -hmm. uh, so my question is kind of a follow-up to what you just said, which is how do you actually add the realism to something that is going to be surreal or even in this case, something that actually is not necessarily too out of the world. It's just something that you're going to basically like, you know, let's say you're removing a, a background, putting in something different there. Uh, how do you actually maintain the realism and the authenticity of the actual scene itself? So, so that's some of the hardest stuff to do, especially, especially something like in the Heights or, um, we did, uh, gosh, the, the name of the show escapes me, but we did like the, uh, there was a show from, uh, the get, the get down, the get down. Are you familiar with that? Um, which was like the Bronx in, uh, like the sixties or something like that. Everything is very, it's New York city in the sixties, which you would think people don't realize, but don't, or don't recognize it's very recognizable. That's the, the, what you're talking about is, 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 is the hardest thing that we have to do. If you take things that are, um, are known or places that are known and you have to fake that, that's the hardest thing to do in visual effects. Um, that's why some of, some of like, uh, especially like Trek's, Trek's an example of like when they go to San Francisco or where they go someplace that's very identifiable. It's very hard because people know what that looks like, right? What we have to do is, you know, the base, the base for that is you have to have somebody who's a very, very good, uh, like a matte painter generally, because it's going to be a set extension. Right. Um, and we start with that basis. You know, here's here's the the matte painting. Like, let's say you're looking down a street in Manhattan. You know, look, we're going to put that matte painting as long as it's done well enough. We could stick it in the background and then we could we can build on top of that. Right. So if we have a good base. Then we could put atmospherics. You know, you're looking down a street like a summer day. Maybe it's like hot out and there's waves in the street. It's a summer movie. We have all of that stuff to kind of cover the bright spots or the or the hot spots is what I call them of, of places where that can break continuity for the watcher. Right. So you don't want to walk out on a fire escape and the building looks different than what the, the background does. Right. You don't want it to be different in color, shade, tone or anything like that, because if the building looks new and the, everything around it looks old, you know, that's a set, right? So you have, there has to be weathering that's done to the plate. There has to be, you know, 
um, there, there are lots of, uh, you know, we always say, uh, like blur it, glow it, ship it, you know? Um, because a lot of the times you have to blur things and glow things and, and you have to distract the viewer from, from looking at the seams, right? So that's, that's really the, that's where the artistry comes in. That was, that was where I felt the most artistic, you know? And, and I know that sounds weird because when I talk to other artists, they're like, oh, you did hundreds of wig fixes on a show. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't know that, you know, when you watch the show, you had no idea that that happened, you know? Or like de-aging, beautification things, you know. I think that some of those visual effects are um, are incredible because if you could de-age somebody that you know is old already, you know, it's it's you know we did a lot of that for for um, for Brent, you know. Um, we had a we did a lot of because uh, of the time that we had to do, you know. And I think I think we did a pretty good job of it, um, but that's some of the hardest stuff to do, you know. Especially when you're when you're talking about somebody's face that's recognizable, or a place that's recognizable, you know, covering the seams. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces, like 10 Forward from the Enterprise-D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schillerman. And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, 
providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Sean, let us jump into our Star Trek discussion here. We got a lot to talk about here. Uh, so I'd like to kind of start at the beginning. How did you actually get into CBS and Star Trek? And was this position that you have currently, was that how you got into this? Or were you working at a different level, essentially, before you got to the title you're at now? We have a vendor and client side is what we call it. So client side is working for the studio, working for the show, whatever that show is. And vendor would be me working at exactly that, of, of, as an artist or as a producer or whatever, what be it, at a vendor. So I worked for a vendor for for years, different vendors, um, Pixamondo, Fuse Effects, just to name a couple of them. Um, and I, I was I was an artist. That's all I was. I had worked with Jason Zimmerman. My first job in the industry was on Terra Nova. I don't know if you guys remember that show, but it was you know the dinosaurs and you know uh, it was super fun to work on. Um, I wish that one would have got a little bit more uh, chance to develop, but. Um, that was my first actual visual effects job. And my our visual effects supervisor was Jason Zimmerman. And over the course of, you know, working with him and for him at Pixamondo, we became good friends. Cut to, you know, after a few years of working within that same peer group, I decided to branch out. Um, as I was a mid-level artist, I wanted to kind of, you know, get some, cut my teeth somewhere else, you know, away from these very senior artists who I had been with for, for X amount of years already, you know. So when I did that and I went out on my own, um, I I always stayed in contact with Jason. Like I said, we had been friends um, and he went on to, uh, we worked together on Sleepy Hollow as well. Um, and he went on to do uh, various other projects. Um, but we always, always, always talked, we were friends. So I became a little, um, a little done with being an artist at one point. I was, I was, I wanted a little bit more, but I wasn't sure that, I can utilize my skills vendor side the same way that I could studio side. So basically what I wanted to do was I, I had spent so much time as an artist um, by the time I left about 10 years that I, I wanted to be able to utilize some of my managerial skills and, you know, some of my, you know, my, my background in operations and logistics. I wanted to be able to utilize some of that um, because I didn't want it to lay dormant. You know, it, it it's also, you know, the, the technical side has to be as, fed just as much as the artistic side right um to be to be a whole person in my opinion i you know i feel like that's it's important um so so i realized that i i couldn't i couldn't get what i wanted at a vendor and you know the more i would talk with jason he would be like well you know why don't you you know there there may be an opportunity sometime in the future to to come here and 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 learn some things you know you can learn different sides of the business because that was my thing i wanted to learn both sides of the business um, I want to learn, get lower, learn producing, all of that stuff, you know. Um, and I, I was very fortunate that he, there was a space for me, you know. I, I talked to him. I came out on season one. Uh, I visited set, saw what it was, saw what this side, because I had never been on that side before, you know. I'd never been on set or anything. Um, and I wound up waiting, waiting it out because I was still, I was very loyal to the vendor I was at at the time. Um, and then, you know, season one ended and season two was coming around and he was like, you know, I think that there's, that there's a, a place for you here if you want it. Um, and I was, I felt very fortunate that he would, he would, you know, after all those years, you know, he would didn't work for me. He had no idea what kind of artist I was, you know, and, 
Um, I started on season two as an artist, as an in-house artist for us, which quickly, quickly uh, changed from me being an in-house artist and moonlighting as a, as a VFX coordinator um, to being a full-time coordinator due to um, the team logistics. You know, so there were some team changes that happened at that time. Um, so I went in and I, you know, the first couple of months I was, I was compositing and, you know, I was kind of learning coordination and learning what the producers were learning what everybody does. Right. And how I can, uh, uh, how I can utilize my skills and, and leverage that to be able to be a help. And we just went from there. You know, I, I started as a coordinator on season two. Um, and I wound up taking on, uh, a lot of different responsibilities because I had, I had a lot of experience with, you know, managing teams and people and, um, dealing with logistics, which is something that, you know, it, we might call it something different in visual effects, but it's it's basically the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I coordinated all of season two. And then, you know, we we had a we had a project manager come in at the time uh, for a short period. And, uh, you know, we just we realized that um, I, I could fit, fill the role. Um, and and I had already been filling that role to some extent. And uh, they, they, Jason allowed me to, to be the guy, you know, um, for, uh, for the next coming season, you know. And then at that point, we had other, other shows in the works. And I wound up, you know, doing being the same person for those other shows. So yeah, it's very cool to work for a place that actually lets you kind of improve yourself and just work your way up to a, to a different position, too. A lot of places I know aren't as easy to do that in. So it's cool to hear CBS is like that. So we, we operate. Although we are we're, we we operate under CBS, we we don't it, our system isn't isn't really the norm in the industry. We operate sort of like a vendor would because we have multiple shows and because we have multiple teams that all work under the same umbrella. Um, we we operate very much like a small boutique vendor. So we have that we have you know we are we are lucky enough that that we can bring people on and grow them just like just like I had been grown. Um, when I had come on, you know, the team has quadrupled in size since when I started almost. I feel very fortunate to to have been able to grow. And when people come on and I hire new people, it's something that I tell them that, you know, you work project-based, you know, you might work for NBC and work on a show, or you might work for CBS on another show, but you're not gonna, you're there for that project, you know, whereas unless that show gets multiple seasons and, and you're a part of that core team, there's a good chance you're going to be looking for work once that show ends. Whereas we don't really have that, you know, we hire our, we hire our people with the intention of saying, hey, um, you know, we would like to make sure that you have the skills that you have to grow with us. And we would that's what we want to do. We want to grow our people. Right, very cool. Now, we actually spoke to one of the editors on Discovery, Chad Rubel, uh, not too long ago. And he talked to us a lot about what he does on that side of things and, and that part of the post-production workflow. Uh, and he mentioned that sometimes the editors will also take on some VFX shots, some basic VFX shots. Uh, so I'm curious if you can kind of define when does a shot get decided to be done by a video editor versus the VFX team? You usually the stuff that the that the video editors do would be like split screens. It's usually not an artistic thing. It's usually more of a uh, timing, um, or like I said, split screens or or uh, speed ramps. They do a lot of speed ramps, that sort of thing. But but outside of that, they don't. You know, they they might do. Um, they might put motion in some shots, you know, movement to kind of help help sell the story that they're doing, that type of thing. But I, at least at least on on our shows, they're not doing any type of of artistic visual effects. Basically, you know, they're doing stuff that helps the story. Um, but anytime something has to get uh, has to get touched and uh, or or if we have to pull a plate for something, that's generally going to be an us thing. 
um, because they don't they don't have the capability to to pull in DPX plates and uh, and do the work on the shots and then to finish them out and get them rendered. Like that's not really what they do. Um, so yeah, it's it's mostly like and and again, it, some of what they do is is artistic, you know. Especially I I go back to split screens because they do a lot of split screens generally because that's how they sell the action, you know. Um, and some of that stuff is a little bit easier for them to do themselves because they know they're trying to tell a certain story, right? So they can, they, if they have control over scaling and moving and being able to tell the story that way, then, then they should, of course. Um, and they, they do get some say, um, in a lot of, you know, we send them, you know, pre-visual, pre-visual, visualization shots, sorry, um, for them to look at, you know, we send them our, basically, you know, previous shots are, you know, we're going to take this ship and go like this and it's going to come this way. And, you know, they might, we might send it to them and say, hey, well, this, this doesn't work for our story. We, we kind of need it to go that, come in this way and then go that way. And we're like, okay, cool. So we'll send that back to our vendor and, you know, we'll make the changes, send it back to them. Hey, does this work for the story? It, it is collaborative. It is very collaborative when it comes to those types of shots, for sure. I mean, my, my primary reason for asking that uh, kind of comes down to my next question here, which is about the budgets of the show. And uh, Star Trek is a very VFX heavy show, which means that their budget is going to be a lot higher than a typical show with that kind of thing. So you uh, I imagine it makes sense for, have, like, the, for having the editors doing the previous scenes, that kind of thing. Uh, but how does the budget come into play when we're talking about a Star Trek show? And, and uh, you know, obviously, we're not going to talk about numbers here or anything like that. But uh, just generally speaking, uh, how does the budget come into play and how does it affect the VFX department versus the editor department and, and that sort of world of the post-production workflow? We have a we have a we have a, a really good sized budget for it's Star Trek, right? Like it's not like we have ten bucks and we got to make it work. Um, but I, I think we have, you know, and I think I, I think I can say this uh, pretty and and not get in trouble for it. But I think what we do with our budgets compared to other shows is incredible. When we look at when we when we compare ourselves to other studios or other shows, um, the size of our budgets compared to theirs. Um, are quite different. Even though we are very VFX heavy, we are very, very frugal and smart with what we do. So we do things, you know, another studio might, it might cost them twice as much money to do. But we do it at, you know, at the cost that we can do it because, well, for the number of reasons. And I think a lot of it comes down to um, Jason is very uh, good with, he understands the needs for our, for our universe. Um, and he knows how to, he's so experienced in, in, in being able to execute things for at a budget. Right. So, so we might have something that's costs a lot of money and he, he will have a solution that we can get it for half of that, or, or, you know, like we can get it under budget, right? Basically that's what it is. He, 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 he is very smart with visual effects and he, he knows how to, how to make the money work for us. So even though we might have a very, very small budget compared to another studio or another show, we're able to, to maximize our, our, what we put on screen, right. Based off that number, you know, and I just think it's incredible. You know, I like without talking about numbers, if you look at, if you look at some other shows and it doesn't have to be a, a space show, it could be, you know, it could be Thrones. It could be, uh, Westworld or whatever it is, you know, those are very visual effects heavy shows and, you know, not to talk about their budgets either, but they're, they're, there's a, a large difference between, you know, how we do things and how they do things, you know? So I think that, I think that when, when we look at a lot of people 
or laymen look at shows and they're like, oh, this costs a lot of money to make. It does cost a lot of money to make. But if you do it smart, you can make something really beautiful for, for a fraction of the cost that somebody else might just because you know how to make, how to work it, right? Jason was, a, was an artist to begin with. He knows how everything works. He knows every step of the pipeline. So, and we, the vendors that we work with are amazing, amazing, amazing vendors. And they're also very smart. They're very, they know how to get from A to B with, within our budget, within our limits um, and make it look good. You know, I think, I think some of the visual effects we put on screen is some of the best anywhere. You know, I, I would, you know, I would, I would put our stuff up against anybody, to be honest, you know, it's hard to, to, to make space look real. Um, and we do it. We do it for a very, um, we do it for a good price. You know, at least I think so, you know. Now, we know that filming a Star Trek episode happens at a breakneck speed. Uh, and I'm curious about the post-production workflow for this part, too. Uh, what is the average turnaround time typically for a shot? Let's say, you know, like a standard shot of a phaser blast or a transporter beam effect versus something that you have to do that's basically custom. Like, uh, it could be, I'll let you figure out something custom you guys can do. But sure. uh, what, what would you say is a typical turnaround time for a VFX shot and for the VFX of an entire completed episode? I think it depends. Um, it depends on a lot of things, actually. So some some shots are deceptively hard. So you may get a shot that looks or that should be very easy. I mean, I learned this early as an artist, too. If something looks easy, it's probably not easy. <laughs> um, so even things like, uh, like phaser shots are, are good, I think, because, you know, if you have a phaser battle happening, right, and it's happening across different shots, there's a lot that goes into that. So each shot, you know, maybe the phaser is on screen for a fraction of a second. Each shot could take, you know, 30 minutes to do maybe, right? Hey, put this phaser in here, you know. But then when we look at the scene, we have to we have to make sure that those phasers are all, it all makes sense where they're going. They all look the same, that, you know, the heat intensity of the, of the, the beam, everything looks the same when it hits, whatever, whatever, um, whatever happens, whatever it hits reacts properly. Right. Um, so there are a lot of things. So we may have a, let's say we have a scene, um, and we, that we send to a vendor for phasers and they give it to three different artists and we get those shots back. One of those shots probably didn't take very long to do, but then when we have to try to get them back all to look the same, that's when it comes in. That's when it becomes this thing where this artist did this thing, this artist did that thing. And, and, that wouldn't happen really with a phaser with, with the phaser sequence. Our vendors are really good, but I've seen it happen at being on vendor side that these kind of things that that can go wrong, right? When you split a when you split a scene out across artists, that's when it becomes more money, right? We're kicking things back. It's more money for the vendor generally because they have to pay their people to to come back and redo the shots and, and touch them up, and you know we got to give we give notes, right? Whereas something like a, a large CG shot. Um, could take weeks, you know, sometimes, sometimes a couple of months, depending on the size of it, but there's so much planning that goes into it from the, from previs to, uh, you know, before previs, even from storyboarding to, um, to, uh, to previs to what the, the, the whip shots come in, you know, Hey, this is what the previs look like. Here's here, here's some stuff when it looks textured and here's the motion and this is what's going to happen, but it's not finished. So you're looking, you know, you might look at, a, at the same shot of a, of a ship battle, for instance, and it may be six weeks, eight weeks, you know, we don't always have that time, um, especially on a team. I think, I think, I think what people think that our schedules are more compressed than they are because we are TV, um, but we're not television like 
like network television, you know, where we're, where we're airing, we're not, we're not, we're not usually up against air dates. Normally we could finish our visual effects and finish our show way prior to airing. You know, that's our goal. Our goal, if we do our job correctly, as, as if my teams, if me, if I'm doing my job correctly, then we're, we're delivering episodes long before that they, that they air, you know, so that we can get them on screen. You can get them in front of the studio. The studio could look, if there's anything last minute that they need, we have enough time to go back and, and make adjustments, you know, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I mean, sometimes the easy shots can, can take a lot longer than, it, you know, it might take, you might take two or three weeks to get all these phasers and all these things that are bouncing around together. Or maybe we have um, exteriors, you know, it might be a simple set exterior, but if it's across different scenes, if it's in different episodes, even that's where it becomes in where, where these things take a long time to dial in as opposed to a CG shot where we know we want the ship to do this and that's what we make it do. And we have a little bit more control because we had so much planning for it, you know? All right. So Sean, let's get into the real nitty gritty here. Cause that's what I like to do on Trek Untold. I like to get real technical here. So uh, what is the preferred software that you guys are using for your 3d and for your compositing? And is this basically a standard that your entire team uses or is it kind of like the artist can just use whatever their preferential program is? Um, I think it depends. Uh, if we're talking in-house, uh, our guys primarily use Nuke for compositing. We do a little 3D work in-house uh, when, you know, we basically let our artists use what they need. Uh, we're working in Maya a lot. Um, and he uses something else. I forget what it is. I was never a 3D artist, but I forget what it, whatever it is that he's using. But he, he our, our 3D artist who's in-house is, he's worked on several iterations of Trek and, um, you know, he's been a, a friend of mine for years. We've worked at Americans and he is incredible. I mean, we can, the amount of times he has been able to come through and, and, you know, whether it's checking assets and, you know, for, for what, for what, for the show or building assets for the show and passing them to vendors to use, or, you know, helping our vendors get from point A to point B. Um, and he's been invaluable you know, since, since we added him and we, we basically let him do what, what do you need? You know, that's, that's my thing. And, you know, I, I want, cause I was an artist, you know, and I want, I want all our artists to, to, you know, what do you need? If you need something, we're going to make it happen, you know, because if, if, if we can get you the right tools then that's going to make you more efficient. And if you're more efficient, then we're doing more shots. And if we're doing more shots, then everybody's happy, you know, especially with in-house stuff, in-house stuff, we have a lot of control over. So, you know, there are some things we, a lot of times we'll set the look of something in-house. You know, we have our lead artist, Charles Collier, who he's a visual effects supervisor actually for us as well. Um, and, you know, he's set looks across the Star Trek universe. You know, he, we, we workshop things with him and I've worked with him for years too. And he's one of the most talented artists I know. And he'll, we will workshop things in-house and, and give that to the vendor. Hey, this is what we want it to look like here. You could start here now. I think that helps us out a lot. So, Sean, a lot of the new Star Trek shows, it's very common for them to get a lot of flack, a lot of criticism from pundits online, and a lot of it's usually unwarranted. But uh, you know, one in particular that I'm curious to hear your reaction to uh, would be the big spaceship battle at the end of season one of Picard. And a lot of people refer to that as the copy and paste space battle because basically you had the Starfleet that was there. The Starfleet ships were all essentially the same type of ship. The Rhineland ships were all basically the same type of ship and they're kind of fighting around the giant space orchid. Um, but that was kind of like the main thing I heard is people were just complaining about how some of the models were reused. Uh, so I'm curious if you can kind of break down a little bit of the making of that scene and why that decision was made. I, it's, a little, it's a little difficult for me to speak to that because I, there, I think there are multiple reasons for, for decisions to be made that way. 
um, I think I think one of them is is paramount would be cost, right? Um, the cost of if we had to create that many ships that were very different from one another, you know, it would it it would tank any show. It's it's not it's not really you know I've seen that online, and I think that my my response to that would be, well, what other show has done a battle that way? And that you liked it. What other show could put 200 ships on screen or however many ships it is and each one be different and special? I don't know of a show that did that. You know, I think that was part of the criticism was people compare it to D Space Nine and their space battles during the Dominion War where you'd have like all these different. I think that was a combination of models and CG at that point. Yeah, uh, but that, that was pretty much the main criticism I'd see. Uh, and kind of just to answer your point is like you'd have that where there was tons of different shifts, but maybe not the same amount overall so right uh, that, that, that's been kind of the counterpoint i've heard to it i think i think i think the ds9 reference is 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 interesting because i think the scale of those battles are not comparable i agree yeah i think people kind of conflate the two things a little bit but yeah i, I you know trek is trek is like any other fandom um star wars or harry potter whatever it is you know we love our our whatever it is so much that we want it to be perfect, right? You know what I chalk it up to, though? I chalk it up to, have you ever read a book and it was amazing, right? And then you see it on screen and you're like, man, like, it's not as good. A lot of people say that. A lot of people always say, oh, the book is better. But I think what people forget is that our perception of what we read or what we, what we see is very different than what's actually happening. Right. So you might be so engrossed in a book, you know, and I have this conversation with people over Lord of the Rings all the time. because I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. And there's so many things that are in the books that are not in the movies and vice versa, whatever it is. And I think Star Trek is the same thing because it's only been visual. Right. I mean, I, I guess I guess. And I know a lot of the fans read the books because the books are excellent. The Star Trek books are excellent. But I think that what people what people their expectations are. Um, what they think they remember from their childhood of TNG or the old Star Trek, that nostalgia they feel, I think it kind of blurs their vision when it comes to the new stuff a little bit um, because they hold on to that nostalgia, you know, just like, like I'm a grown man who, who buys action figures. And, um, and, you know, when I rewatch those cartoons or, or when I rewatch those shows, they're not what I remember them to be, you know, even though I still have this deep love and reverence for them, um, they weren't that. You know, and I think that, that, that that's what we fight a lot in Star Trek. I think people love Star Trek so much that any type of change that happens or any type of um, anything they see that is jarring to them becomes an issue for them. And that's nothing wrong with that. But as I, you know, I, I think you got to look at things apples to apples. I don't think you could take something like like DS9 and compare that to what we did in Picard because the scale is very different, you know. Um, and furthermore, if you have a fleet of ships... Would it be, if you were building a fleet of ships, would you build, because economically, right, just like just like us, you know, the U.S. military, right, we don't have 42 airplanes and they're all different. We have a fleet of 400 airplanes that are the same. We have a, a fleet of ships that are all the same. You know, do we have different models and stuff? Of course. But when you see a, a battle, you can look at old World War II stuff. Those battles, you could you you can make the same comment. Wow, why do all the tanks look the same? They should have made them different. Well, it was World War II. They had four hundred tanks that looked like this. They didn't. Nobody nobody's thinking about that. So I think that 
I think that when you look at something like a space battle, especially that one, you have to look at it from the understanding that like that was a military operation and you have to kind of view it that way. Like, I know it's cool that like, you know, you might see a, a space show and they're like, oh, they have a bunch of different ships, but really they have a few different ships and it's not a military operation that they're doing. You know, I think, I think that you have to view it that way, right? You have to view things in context. And I think that when people look at Picard, they're just like, oh, I wish I could see so many cool ships. But really, that's not in reality. That's not what would happen. If you pulled up to a space dock in the Star Trek universe, you're not going to see um, 40 different fighter ships. You know, you're going to I mean, you're going to see 40 of the same ships lined up, getting gassed, getting prepped, getting ready to go do something. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I think I think people need to apples to apples and not so much of of what they think would be cool, because, you know, just because something's cool doesn't make it correct. Right. And, and also just to add to some kind of the continuity points of DS9 as well, this is getting super hardcore Trekkie for folks out there, but that did take place after the Battle of Wolf 359, where Starfleet mm-hmm. was ravaged from the Borg battles, and so they kind of had to, like, rush to make some ships or whatever, so at that point it kind of was a mishmash of different ships coming to the rescue, but that's right. for another day, <laughs> but... Yep, yep. I guess on a similar point, too, you know, there was a lot of criticism for uh, the thing you mentioned earlier, which is when you guys had the DH Brent Spiner for Data on Picard. And uh, I know you probably have seen it. There was like a deep fake someone did where they like de-age data and, and people are saying, oh, it looks so much better. But I think a lot yeah. of folks aren't really understanding. And you can definitely talk to this point. Uh, a lot of folks really aren't understanding the fact that you guys are a production house or in your case, a post-production house. You've got a lot of different shows. You've got a bunch of different episodes. You've got a lot of different artists working on different things at the same time. So yeah. you know, it's not like you can spend days on just that one shot of de-aging Brent like someone else can do on, on a YouTube channel. Like, look, I can go on the Reface app on my phone and put my face on Leonidas from 300 and it looks amazing on that two second clip you know what i mean like uh, technology is is i think people mistake their phone technology or or the deep fake stuff that they're doing now for um for what really happens in a production pipeline like that's all that fancy stuff is not it's not made for what we do um because if it was then we would do it you know, like, why would we not? You know what I mean? Because honestly, if I could just upload a picture of, of Brent in an app and it puts his face on everything, dancing around or doing whatever he's doing, two button click, I'm done. But no, we had a multitude of artists across those scenes having to match that look, you know, on different cuts and different parts of the story, you know. Um, and it took a lot to get it to get it right. You know, um, because it was it was human people, not a computer, not nobody else doing the work, doing the beautification work to make that look the way it did. Um, could it was it perfect? Most things that humans touch is not are not going to be perfect, you know. Um, but again, if, if I, I wish there was I wish we had a reface app and nuke. and I could just be I could just load somebody's face in there and put them anywhere I wanted. But it, unfortunately, that's not that's not how it works, you know. Um, and I think that's just, that's just like a lot of the fans who do that kind of thing. I just, they're not in the know of, of what technology is being used or, you know, they, they're looking at Facebook, they're looking at these phone apps and they're just like, oh, this is so easy. Why can't they just do this? But, you know, they don't really understand the the magnitude of the cost that it would take to, to, to do that kind of kind of thing, you know? I think one of the really, really cool, impressive things you guys did in season three discovery though, uh, was when you had the shadow monster on uh which was played by a contortionist uh genie Yacinto, i believe is how you pronounce a person's name yeah uh, i thought those were really cool shots uh, i thought you guys did like a real knockout job on that so uh can you kind of walk Thank us you. through how that stuff worked because that, that looked very complicated i mean you're basically matching someone's movements who is not very human looking <laughs> to begin with uh and then you're just creating the entire environment around it so i'd love to get a breakdown of how that all came together 
it was a lot of work. Um, a lot of planning went into those into those shots. Um, I think I think season three had probably some of our best visual effects to date, um, and we had amazing vendors on on that show. You know, we used uh, we had we had a lot of amazing vendors doing a lot of amazing work. Um, and their simulations that they did, those, those shots took months to get right. They, they, they took a long time because they're very complicated. You know, you have to take this actor and, you know, it's not just, you know, you might see, you know, I use Doug Jones as an example because he's been in so many movies and cre- creature effects. You know, a lot of the times people don't see the, the work that goes in after that. Like they have this amazing performance. And then there are things that we have to touch up, right? There are things in post that we have to make happen. And not that we do that for Doug. Um, but in this particular case, you know, we had, it, I, I chalk it up to like Andy Serkis as being Caesar, you know, in, in the apes movies or something, you know, we have this match move, movement that we have that we pull in and, you know, we have to make this simulation move like that. Right. Um, and it takes a long time to make it look fluid. And, you know, cause now, now we're working with computers again, right? This is not, this is not humans doing this to the most part. This is now we're putting the information together um, we're trying to get the movement to look right. We're trying to get the, what's going on around it to look correct. Um, and that takes a long time. Those shots took a long time to, to really get right. But, you know, I, I, our EPs and Jason drove those shots to get them looking the way they did. And I, I think they, they did a phenomenal job. I, I, I chalk it up to the eye of, of both, you know, Jason and our EPs because they, they know what they wanted. And I, I think that, we were able to deliver what they wanted. Um, again, I think it's some of the best work. I think season three had some of the best work that we've ever done. I agree. Season three was really impressive. So from a fan's perspective, I, I totally agree with you on that. It was really, really great to watch and just see the improvements of like where the show was visually at season one to where it is now at season three and the language that you guys are using. So uh, yeah, I, I'm really excited to see season four and beyond. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which I know you can't say anything about, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> can't, can't. I wish I could, but I, it's going to be great. I, I sure think people am. are going to be real happy. So what are some of the shots that you've worked on or that your team has worked on that might surprise our audience to know that they were actually mostly visual effects and not practical effects? You know, I, I think a lot, a lot of, you know, when we, when we start talking about the, uh, you know, the smoke uh, for, for that stuff, um, I think a lot of people are probably like, oh, a lot of this stuff was probably done on set or, or traditional special effects. And, you know, it wasn't at all because uh, it wound up not being, you know, very cost effective to do it that way. Um, and, it, you know, we have so so basically what winds up happening with things like that is, um, you know, we might have an idea for something, you know, uh, for instance, like the, the smoke monster and, and all that. We might have an idea that, oh, we could do we could do this on set with special effects if we shoot it this way. And what winds up happening is, you know, on the day something happens, you know, and we wind up not being able to shoot it. Cause, cause to, to get things done practically, it has to be shot perfectly. That's the thing. Um, because there's always, you'll, you'll always see people fix it in post and, you know, visual effects artists, I hate that comment, fix it in post. Um, but a lot of the times the fixed it in post thing happens because they can't shoot it the proper way on set. And that's, that has nothing to do with the skill of anybody on set. It has to just do with time, um, and, and opportunity really, you know, everybody's crunched on set on to get things done in a certain way. Um, so there's not time for elaborate setups. So a lot of that stuff winds up, maybe we shoot half of it practically and then wind up having to do it all digitally, you know, and I, that happened a lot with, with, with the smoke and, and that kind of stuff where we thought we'd be able to get away with doing some practically and it just didn't work out for us. 
um, but also our set extensions and things of that sort. Um, we have, you know, especially when you look back at uh, season two and you see uh, all the all the, the the Vulcan shots and all the shots uh, um, where you see little Spock and, and things like that. All that stuff outside there, all, everything was touched, you know, the whole backgrounds, everything, everything was touched by us to some extent. And because, you know, we couldn't do it, you know, there was a we wanted to put red trees in the background, you know, and we couldn't put red trees in the background. When we got when we when we did it, so we had to change all the trees to be red at that point, you know, um, things like that. You know, things I think people don't really notice that we do. So going back to our episode we mentioned earlier with Chad, when we discussed the editing, he talked to us about how during the pandemic he was working from home a lot, and I'm sure that was probably the same for you and the VFX team as well. So how did the pandemic affect what you guys were doing and the communications between the teams and just how things were getting sent around? Because now we're talking VFX; these are big, heavy files; these are monsters of files. So how are you guys working together during these really odd, unusual times? If there's one thing I'm most proud of, it is it was the ability to be able to get these teams, not just one team at the time, um, at the time, it, but, but multiple teams working remotely. I had been put in charge of um, our systems and uh, our IT, basically. Um, part of what I do is is make sure that um, that everything runs smoothly. Uh, and, you know... Before we went into the pandemic, I had been working on um, making sure because we were in different offices at the time and we were working on tr- trying to figure out how to how to make all of our shows talk together to begin with. Um, so everything that we do now, I had already been working on because I, I was already thinking ahead because we knew that we would be having multiple shows at some point. Right. So. In, in, in that conversation, I said, okay, well, I, well, as soon as we went into the pandemic, I said, well, these were the thoughts that I had pre-pandemic. This is what I wanted to do. I think I can, impl- I think I can, I can get this done um, in, in this situation so nobody has to stop working. Um, so, so Jason had, man, so much trust in me and, and allowed me to really uh, facilitate getting all of our teams working remotely that, you know, we're still remote. All of us are still remote today. Um, we work in my opinion, more efficiently now than we ever have in an office. Um, I mean, there are things, there are things that I think are, are a little bit different. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's easier to walk up to somebody and have a conversation than it is through chat because of tone, because of, you know, intent, that sort of thing. Um, but we communicate so well, you know, we, we have multiple teams running at the same time and the way that everybody communicates together, you know, through zoom, through Slack, through, through email, um, it's all very, very fluid, you know, um, it, it's, there's no, there's no real break in communication. We all have, we have processes in place. You know, I, I run a team meeting every morning with all the teams. We get the agenda of the day. Uh, you know, we, I check in, we all check in, you know, throughout the day to make sure everybody's on task and it, it just works really, really well. You know, I think, I think for the editors, it's probably a little different. Um, and for our intern in-house team, it's a little different, not communication wise, but because we, we, again, we have to move big files, right? So we use, um, different, uh, programs and stuff. We use Soho net to move large DPX files or large assets that we have to get to vendors or to get to, you know, maybe I have to send something to a uh, picture editorial. Maybe I have to send something to chat, right? And it's really big. Um, we'll, we'll, if it's not so big, maybe we're sending him 
storyboards or something that we had outside of what he had. And we might throw it on, on box or something. And, you know, he can just download it from there. And it's the same thing when we use SohoNet. If we have an asset that we have to give to from in-house to a vendor, we just, everything's done through these, um, through these programs, you know, through, mostly through SohoNet because we move a lot of stuff through SohoNet. They've been really good, really good for us and um, very pleased with them. Uh, but yeah, we use, you know, I've got a, I've got a, a systems company that I brought on, um, Life Networks, who's been amazing for us. And, you know, they keep us up and running. You know, they have our Teridici, all my artists, Teridici in, all my coordinators, they, they have Teridici on their machines. Teridici is basically um, like, a, like a VPN program, like a, a you know, a remote desktop. Um, so they can Teridici into the office where we have everything stored. All our machines are stored there, all our, all our server space. And we never have to leave. We never have to go anywhere because everything is done, you know, through this and, and you know, Life Networks and, and myself help keep us running. Um, if there's a power outage or something like that, you know, uh, we very rarely have to go down to the office to to reboot a machine or anything like that. So it's been really good so far. I'm very, very proud of the teams. You know, communication alone is it's been incredible. You know, it really has. It really has. Every one of our every one of our, our team members has just been amazing throughout this entire thing. You know, very, you know, very, very everybody's responsible. Everybody's receptive. It's really good. We have a really good system. I'm very proud of it. Now, I know you can't really give me too much of an answer here, but I'm going to try and pull a little bit of teeth maybe out of your head so I can get out of you here. So we know that Strange New Worlds is coming very soon. What can you tell us maybe about something that you guys are doing differently for the series? I know you can't really tell me much about budgets or what's actually going on, but, uh, you know, in terms of the visual language, what can we expect that's going to be different from this versus the other shows we've seen so far? That's that's a tough one because in my, and like, again, um, I view things very objectively. And I think that that's why our team is so successful. I think a lot of us view it very objectively. I don't think we're doing anything different. You know, I think the, I think what you'll see, I think the differences you'll see in the show are mostly going to be um, story-wise, you know, told through picture. So, you know, picture editorial and, you know, our directors, um, visual effects wise, I don't, I don't, I don't think anything that we're doing is going to be much different. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's Trek, you know, I think we're, we'll, we'll try to stay as close to, you know, what, what we think everybody wants, you know, we hope. So Sean, as we come to a close for this interview, you've already kind of given some really great tips about the industry and what to do to get your foot in the door. But for anybody that's listening to the show today that really does want to go down the professional pathway of being a visual effects artist, what advice can you tell them to get into the industry? That's a great question. Um, to start out as an artist, in, in the visual effects industry, um, network, 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 networking is the most important thing. And being personable are the most important things that you can do as an artist. You could be a so-so artist, but if you're a great person to work with, you're easy to work with the, the, the older people, the, the people above you, they're going to want to work with you. They're going to want to grow you up into, and, and make you better, you know? Great advice, very actionable advice. So last thing for today, Sean, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? And in your case, a very critical part of the Star Trek universe. Man, this is an easy one. The fans. You know, I, I, I had an interview uh, not long ago and, you know, I said something to the effect of no matter what I do after this and anything that's happened before it, when it comes to visual effects in my career, this is always going to be some of my favorite moments working within the Star Trek universe, because not only are the people 
who are overseeing these shows, amazing people. Like they're the fan base with that. And so basically it's from both sides. So sometimes you could have like, you know, you might work on something and people don't really care about it. You might love it. People don't really care about it. Right. And the people who are, who are above you, they don't really care about it either. Right. Or maybe they care about it too much. And it's, there's like a, there's a conflict there. I've with the Star Trek universe, everybody up top loves Trek and they love, we have a, it's like a huge family. And I think that that's what makes us want to do so many things correctly for the fans because the fans are so passionate and so amazing. And, and this iteration of a Trek is my favorite just because of inclusivity and, and people being seen and um, the heart of the show, the shows that we have, it's very different than, you know, I know, I know most people want Trek to be the same, but I think the small changes, the changes that were made were for the better. I think, I think it's, it's an enjoy, it's enjoyable to work on, you know, when, when fans are, when I read these things and fans are be able to connect with some of these new characters um, and the actors and actresses and, and even our, even our, our executives, when they are interacting with the fans, it, it's amazing. You don't get that on other shows. You really don't, you know, as somebody who's been in visual effects for quite a bit now, that stuff doesn't usually happen, you know? And I think, I think we do a good job of, of trying to listen to the fan base because we know how much they care and we care about, about them. It's not about, dollars and cents it's about making something that is enjoyable for everyone because that's what star trek is star trek is for everybody a great answer so sean i want to thank you again for chatting with me today and clearly you're on a very tight ship here because we're doing this during working hours right now so I mean, yeah you were able to talk to me during this and i know there's all sorts of stuff going on around you so thank you again for just giving me all this kind of time today to chat with you about this and you know i don't want to say that what the vfx artists do is an underappreciated element of star trek because it's clearly not but I think there's so much more to what you guys do that isn't understood. Uh, and so that's why I'm especially extra happy to be able to talk to you today and inform our audience about what it is that your team does and all the little things that they don't even know that you're doing. So uh, thank you so much for explaining everything and uh, for not leaking too much about Strange New Worlds or the shows as much as I tried. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was really great. I've got about 900 emails, but it's okay. I've got the rest of the day for that. Yeah, no big deal. Truck and Told is far more important than Jason Zimmerman. 100%. So, yeah, Sean, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate your time. And for folks who don't know, follow Sean on Twitter at SeanVFX. And that was our chat with Sean Owasco. Really fun, very informative episode. And I hope you guys learned a lot of things because I definitely did do in this episode, too. The original Star Trek series was an oddity in that not one company was solely responsible for the special effects of it, but in fact, it was actually three different studios who received a joint Emmy Award nomination in 1967. Those three companies were the Howard A. Anderson Company, Film Effects of Hollywood Incorporated, and the Westheimer Company. All three companies did different tasks that were oftentimes linked together or fairly similar in concept, meaning these companies worked on similar types of effects, but in their own ways and for different purposes. The Andersons Company made the Enterprise, which was designed by Matt Jeffries, and worked on the space travel and other distortions in that vein of that type of effect. Film Effects of Hollywood did many of the optical printing techniques that gave us distorted images used as transitions for aliens or planets, as well as phaser blasts and other effects that had to be done using practical tools. They also had the job of making the Enterprise appear to be flying through space, once Anderson's company finished their work on the vessel. The Westheimer company picked up where those two left off to do even more shots of the Enterprise, as well as the transporter materializations, phasers, superimposures, and optical effects for, as they put it, esoteric adventures. 
Sadly, Star Trek did not win the Emmy that year and lost out to a show called Time Tunnel. But Star Trek's time would come in the not-so-distant future, where Emmy Awards for visual effects and other things would be quite commonplace for them. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew. Thanks for listening. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.